Please stand for the reading of the word from Exodus chapter 3. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it, did not, yet it was not consumed. When Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Helps you turn the right light mic on. That was a little embarrassing. Good morning, Highland. It's good to see you here today. It's good to see this room. Uh, We are, I am excited that uh, I I loved our uh, kind of hybrid service, our blended service for the last year. Um, But it's good to be back and just straight instrumental. I, I do not love preaching early. I fell in love with preaching late, and it's good. I feel like I'm more, a little more here, a little more aware than I was at first service. Um, but I also saw a lot of new faces today. And when I say new, I mean those faces that I hadn't seen for like a year. And I got to hug some necks, and that felt really good. Um, we're going to start a new series called Re-Enchantment. And uh, I want to kind of think through that. We're going to be doing this for about six weeks. But I want us to begin thinking about what does that mean by looking at the story of Moses. Now, Moses is born in a very interesting time, frankly, a, a hard time. He's, he's a Hebrew, which means that he is descended of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He's part of, of that family. And if you remember at the end of Genesis, Joseph saves his family from, from famine by taking them into Egypt. But They get stuck there, and they stay there. And what began as just sojourners becomes slaves. And God blesses the Hebrews the way that he has always blessed his people in the story of Genesis by giving them them children. And, And frankly, the Egyptians begin to decide that there is just too many of these slaves. There's too much risk of of uprising or or a problem. And so they make a very terrible law. They say, kill all of the baby boys. Now, Exodus would tell you that God protects those boys. The the midwives say, Well, there's nothing we can do. I'm so sorry, Pharaoh. Those Those Hebrew women, they just give birth so quickly. There's nothing we can do. And you can imagine that that Moses' mother protects him and hides him for as long as she can. But every now and then, an Egyptian taskmaster or, or, or soldier would go through the place that Moses is living. Have you ever tried to keep a baby quiet on purpose? If that kid's not asleep, it's not happening. And so Moses' mother does exactly the only thing she can do. She, she makes a basket for him to stay and tells his older sister to put him in the river during the day. Well, that plan is, is foiled because not only does an Egyptian show up to the river to take a bath, it's Pharaoh's daughter. 
And then in this moment of mirth, I think, in the text, in this moment of humor, uh, Pharaoh's daughter opens the basket, sees the baby, and she does what everyone does when they see a baby. She wants to pick it up and hold it and love it and take care of it. And then poof, Moses' older sister shows up and says, hey, would you like uh, a Hebrew uh, woman to help care for this baby, raise this baby, feed this baby? And Pharaoh's daughter says, sure. And Moses ends up right back in the house where he started to be raised. And reflect on me what it's like for Moses as a boy to grow up when he did. He might have been one of the few boys in his village. And everyone looked at him and asked, why Moses? Why is he alive? And to the faithful, that answer is Yahweh, but to the more cynical, that answer is, well, it's Pharaoh's daughter. And so Moses grows up in a difficult time. And he knows, grows up, and he knows that very soon when he gets old enough, he's going to leave his people and his village and his parents and have to live in Pharaoh's palace. And so he goes to Pharaoh's court, and he learns how to navigate that political system. But the entire time he's there, he has an identity crisis because he's in Pharaoh's court, he's in Pharaoh's palace, but everybody looks at him and asks the exact same question. Why Moses? Why is he here? And their answer is, well, it's, it's Pharaoh's daughter. But Moses grows up the whole time knowing that he is not Egyptian, but he's in the heart of the center of power of Egypt. And eventually, when he gets to become an adult, maybe 30, 40 years old, this crisis becomes unbearable for him. And he sees an Egyptian beating a couple of Hebrew slaves, and in secret, he kills that person and tries to bury him in the sand to show who he is. Because even though he lives in the palace, he's still a Hebrew. And maybe he feels good about that moment until he realizes that the murder is going to be found out. He sees two Hebrew uh, guys fi fighting with one another, and he's like, hey, knock it off. And they look at him, and they say, are you going to kill us too? Because they don't see Moses. They see Hebrew that lives in the palace. And eventually, Pharaoh finds out and tries to kill him, and Moses has to flee. And so he goes to Midian, where he finds a life of sorts. He gets married, and he has a wise father-in-law, but he never feels like he belongs. Moses, for most of his life, has a compass needle that has not yet been sent, set. And this is most obvious in what he names his firstborn. His firstborn is, I am an alien living in an alien land. And he's not saying, I am an alien because I'm a Hebrew living in Midian. He's saying, I am an alien because everywhere that I've lived, I don't fit in. And then one day, everything changes. He's tending his flock like he's done every day since he settled in Midian, and he sees something he can't explain, something that he has never seen before, and he says to himself, I must turn aside and see. And this moment is what theologians call theophany. 
It's, it's very rare when it happens, uh, period, and it's extremely rare when it happens even in Scripture, the book about the story of God. It's extremely rare when God kind of speaks into reality like this, but every time that God speaks into reality, the world changes. We're going to look for the next six weeks about this idea of re-enchantment. And what I want to give you for the next like three minutes, four minutes, it's kind of a brief synopsis of the world that we're living in. It's what Charles Taylor calls a secular age. And this begins in like the 17th or the 18th century, but it really gathers steam in the 19th and 20th century. And when we say secular, what we simply mean is it's, it's a place or a space where there is no religious or spiritual basis. It's when you walk into that place and you don't see anything that reminds you of God or God's or mystic power. And you might think to yourself, well, that's everywhere in my life but right here when I go to church. But that, that wasn't always the case. For instance, if we were to go to Geneva, Switzerland in the 16th century, this is about the time that John Calvin is, is doing most of his work and his thought, every baby that was born into Geneva was baptized as an infant. And you might have heard in popular theory that part of this was because of a high infant mortality rate and they wanted the security of, of, of baptism for their children. That's really not the case. You know, that's not what's going. Contrary to popular thought, this isn't sort of, sort of comment about the nature of baptism or free will or lack thereof, this is John Calvin, but simply because everyone you would meet in that city was Christian. Everyone. It would not be fathomable to anyone in Geneva to meet anyone that didn't go to church almost every day. It was just simply the world that they live in. Everyone was Christian. In fact, some people trace the modern roots of atheism to the schism that happened in the church with Martin Luther. We know that as the Protestant Reformation. Now, in the West, up to that point, save for a few heretics and the occasional blurb, uh, there is one voice and presence of God. There's one voice for that. But when there are two different voices for the presence and existence of God, then why not have three? And if there's three voices for the presence or existence of God, why not have zero? After all, the, the term atheism is atheistic. It's a negative statement about the presence of the assumed God. And I think connected to this is the growing sense uh, in our secularism of the rising experience of disenchantment. And what I mean by that is, is the world was full of benevolent and dark spirits. Those stories that you read in the Grimm's fairy tales, if you get like the original endings, they're downright scary. But those weren't just to scare children or, or good bedtime stories or bad bedtime stories, depending on how old your kids were. Um, that was formational stories. That was to teach you that the, the woods are dangerous places. And that there are people there that are dangerous. And there are things there that we cannot explain. The world was full of benevolent and, and, and dark spirits, witches, fairies, leprechauns, the, the fae, that sort of thing. And human beings were embedded and embodied in the world. And we could in, manipulate the supernatural through spiritual practices and spiritual places on spiritual times. 
Enchantment is a state of wonder. It's that moment of pure presence, a moment so transfixed in our minds, it must remind us of no other moment. That's what happens with Moses when he sees this bush. I must turn aside and see. I'm not sure if you can go out to find enchantment, but only be ready when it springs on you. But disenchantment began when we began to believe that the only locus of thought and feelings and spirituality is in what we call minds. And the only place that minds reside in the universe, in the cosmos, are in human beings. Our culture and our common life is becoming increasingly disenchanted. The world is dominated not just by medicine and technology, but by the rate by which those disciplines are increasing. Notice for just a minute, if you take politics off the board, how much information on your newsfeed is about technology or medicine. Just notice how much that pervades our culture. In society, as noted by the recent Gallup poll, um, the rate by which, uh, excuse me, there are more and more people who simply do not believe in God anymore. A disenchanted world believes, leaves behind fairy tales and magic, but it also leaves behind divine action for more cynical and skeptical views of the world. And this has been happening for a long time. We're not completely there yet. In a West Texas rural town like Abilene, football players still kneel in prayer before a game. And when I was in the Bronx, I could go to the Jamaican or the Dominican bodega, which is sort of like a corner store. And in the medicine section, they would have Advil, along sage to burn, and a candle to Santa Maria, all as ways to cure your headache. But for the most part, we rely more on Google Maps than St. Christopher to help us get us to our destination. And we're going to pray for our cancer, but we're also going to engage in chemotherapy. Technology and medicine have eclipsed the role of spirituality in our everyday lives. And it's rare that you encounter something enchanted where you don't expect it. But what does this mean and say about God? Does this mean that God has quit moving, quit speaking, quit working? After all, Mark does include that little comment in his uh, story about Jesus in his hometown. He says Jesus couldn't work very many miracles there because of their lack of faith. But the key to interpret that text is, is not that it was their lack of faith, but the fact that they knew him. This was his hometown. This is the place where he was most deeply known. Could not, was not a basis, was on the basis of principle, not power. It's not that God, Jesus could not perform miracles there. It's that Jesus would not. God's power has not stopped. But maybe our ability to see it has. There's this um, psychological term called the, the Bader-Minhoff phenomenon. And after you, Bader-Minhoff, now I've said that to you, my guess is in the next couple of weeks you're going to run into that phrase again. And basically, simply what it means is when you encounter a new idea or a thought or a thing, you, it shows up everywhere. 
Once you notice something, it keeps showing up in all of these other places and different expressions. For me, the first time that happened was I was in an elders meeting back in San Jose, and one of the elders was telling us about blockchain, which is how Bitcoin functions. It's kind of the the idea behind how Bitcoin works. It's a really brilliant strategy for making sure that people can keep track of things. And I'd never heard those two words together, blockchain, at all. I was in Silicon Valley, never heard those two ideas together. But after he mentioned it and explained it that night, I saw it like four times in the next two weeks. It was fascinating. Because once you begin to know something, once you begin to develop the eyes to see, you see it everywhere. And so Moses has been standing there doing the same thing he's done for the last 40 years, watching sheep. And there's something that he's never seen before. It doesn't fit in any category in his head. It's not outside of nature, but it's so profoundly different. And so he goes to check it out. When has that happened in your life? You were just browsing a bookstore, not really looking for anything in particular, and you just happened to pick up that one book that kind of changes the course of your career. Or you, were, you just went with some friends to somewhere and you meet someone and they say something and it sticks in your mind. It's so profound that it changes the way that you perceive the world. It just reframes your perspective immediately. Maybe you decide to take the less common path and you see something new or you meet someone different. Maybe even God. I don't know why, but this always happens at the edge of your vision. It's on the periphery of your attention. You always get sideswiped by the presence of God. It's this odd little thing. It's this persistent thought or sentence that just won't leave your brain. God has never stopped acting. We just ratcheted down the spaces where we expect God to do something. God didn't give up or abandon the world. We just stopped paying attention. And I wonder what it would look like if that changed. Maybe our world is a little more enchanted than we think it is. On your way out today, if you didn't get one coming in, there are bookmarks um, available to you in the lobbies. And I want you to pick up one of those bookmarks. And it's going to have six weeks of exercises for you to do. And this, this, uh, this time, this season that we're in where we're looking at re-enchantment, I want us to begin to experiment in the practice of looking for God, being ready to be present for God. Because sometimes you see something and you think you just have to turn aside. Here's the bookmark. And this week, what I want you to do is I want you to drive home on a different path than you normally do. You normally have your route going home, and you don't even think about it. You show up at home. You haven't even remembered if you stopped at the lights or not because you went the whole way there. This week, go by a different path and notice things. Now, the problem with telling you that is that most of us commute by car, and it goes too fast for us to notice things. So if you go for a a walk or if you go for a run or just get outside of your neighborhood, go to some new neighborhood and walk around and look at the architecture. Look at the art. Abilene is full of those old houses that have those little peculiarities that just pop out at you. Practice the art of paying attention. Because when you notice something out of the corner of your eye, when we get in the habit of seeing things that we didn't expect to see, 
Sometimes, just maybe, God shows up. And when God shows up, it changes the world.